Welcome to season four of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hi, everybody. It's Bob Garlic here, and I've got another book in front of me, of course, Making Your Work Work, Everyday Performance Revolution by Jan Gillett. And I have him on the line. He's way over in England, and they're on a bank holiday today, so I actually got him to work on a not-work day, which is awesome. So, Jan, thanks very much for coming on the show. No problem. So, let's talk a little bit about your book. It's, you know, I, I've been going through it. There's lots of diagrams. It's very process-driven. Why do businesses need to read this book? Well... Uh, I guess this goes back a long time, as stories often do, but uh, a lot of your compatriots in the U.S. will have heard of Dr. W. Edwards Deming, Mm. uh, and he was the kind of genius that worked uh, with the Japanese in in the 1950s and onwards, Uh, and he always, I was privileged to meet him towards the end of his life in the late 1980s, and he used to constantly ask, by what method? And uh, so many, much attention in business management and leadership has been about the people side or the money side. Uh, But actually, even all these years on from when Toyota and the auto industry have shown how to do things effectively, most of the world's uh, organizations just still don't get it. That it's it's not enough to concentrate on relationships. You have to... concentrate on the flow of the work uh, and and good work flows well everybody knows that but how to get it set up to do that that's what my last 20 years of my life has been about well and you know and systems are so incredibly important for uh, every organization that I've ended up working with and and from very very small to, to larger ones um, it's always been about having a bunch of meetings getting to know people getting the trust factor in and then it's like okay we got that all figured out now how are we gonna how are we gonna do all the stuff we've been talking about right and i've uh, had a, lots of experience over my whole life that most employees most staff in in most organizations large or small would like that organization to work well uh, and even though they probably had all kinds of initiatives and all kinds of close downs and transfers and goodness knows what, actually cut them in two and the organization runs through them. Mm. Um, but again, as old Dr. Deming used to say, uh, best efforts are not enough. In fact, lots of times people working hard on something actually make it worse, not better, uh, because they don't understand um, just what the theories are behind the work. They don't understand how to figure out when things are really different as opposed to just when they look a bit different. So they react at the wrong time. And this this goes from people on the shop floor doing things or in call centers all the way up to the boss who gets a complaint or an accident and everybody piles and investigates this thing. And Actually, very often that time is wasted because it's not just one of those things happening. There's lots of things happening like that. And just investigating the one that happened to hit the news um, is counterproductive. It puts fixes in. Everybody knows they've got to avoid whatever that used to be. Uh, But meanwhile, lots of other things get ignored. And Hmm. small to large organizations are actually a whole bunch of contradictory fixes <laughs> which most people can't remember when they were first installed and it sort of bumbles along all right depending on how good your competitors are hmm. so uh, so having spent the last 20 years as a, as a consultant and trainer in businesses around the world um and very often working with people who are supposed to be internal change agents uh, and we would help train them up to help their colleagues Um, But all the time, what was missing was getting direct to the colleagues, getting direct to the person who is a manager in a big organization or who maybe is themselves just running a restaurant or something like that. Um, I'm a manager. I'm a leader. I've done some stuff on getting people engaged 
Um, but how do I understand what's going on and what kind of approach should I take to really methodically uh, improving it in future or redesigning it, not just fixing it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let's just jump into the, the redesign or and I, I hate to use the word like redesign because it, it, it makes it sound um, difficult. And really, after you've gone through your book, it's not really difficult. It's just being aware or conscious of these are the steps that you need to do. Yeah. And then just keep doing and perfect and doing perfect and, and just get it. So the circle we're talking about is plan, do, study, act. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, absolutely. And it's one of the curious things is I wish it wasn't called plan, do, study, act. Uh, <laughs> it should really be called the Deming cycle because he and some other people back in the early 50s came up with a series of steps which were in effect trying to put the scientific method into a diagram. Uh, and of course, if you've got four steps in a circle, you have to start with one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But really, the one you should start with is study mm-hmm. what's going on. Um, and we get to in a minute why that's very common to find plan, do, check, act. Uh, but right at the end of his life, Deming changed Plan Do Check Act to Plan Do Study Act, and he wouldn't give it his own name. Hmm. Uh, but then lots of scientific people over many years from Newton or whoever, they don't name things after themselves. It takes other people to say uh, this should be named after that person. Hmm. So you've got this four steps. First of all, start off with study. Uh, what's going on, people, processes, customers, numbers, all those kind of things. And if you're new into a job, then you can look at those with a, an open mind. Um, and from those, then the next step is kind of act, take decisions. But actually, in this first stage, the decisions you should take is to get into thinking about cause and effect. You've learned a lot of stuff, preferably with some colleagues, try and come up some, with some explanations as to why it's like this. Um, and so you need to be prepared to share hypotheses or might call them theories. <laughs> and of course, lots of people in Western management, particularly the US and the UK, don't like talking about theories. They think it, it makes it academic. Mm. Uh, but actually, a theory is simply a way of saying, if we do this, we believe that will happen. So if we've done the studying um, and we've come up with some place, things that we need to improve, then let's make some prediction. Let's declare what we're trying to accomplish and let's also figure out how we're going to tell if the change that we're about to try, is that change going to be an improvement? How will we know that? What's the indicators? So we've done, we've gone from study through act, bypassing act a bit at this stage, plan, planning a test. And so going around this cycle, the next step is to do the, the, the do to do a trial to do and there's always opportunities to do a trial uh, preferably on a small scale of course and preferably keep close to it and work with the people in, in whatever the application is and collect some data for learning so here's part of the revolution most data is not collected for learning most data is collected to refer to head office or whoever and, and, and if or it's inspected and if the data isn't right isn't what people hope it would be then there's all sorts of ways of fixing it so it looks right and so nobody gets any learning out of that sort of data <laughs> um, and so in using the scientific method approach this Deming cycle then let's get some data for from the trial and let's compare what we got with what our prediction was that's what scientists do in the laboratory wherever it is looking at the stars, all that kind of thing. It's about trying to make a prediction based on a theory. Let's look at the data. Does that confirm the theory or disconfirm the theory? And with a bit of luck, it comes out as we hoped. And now we've got back to study again. um, And we can figure out, right, okay, that seems to mean that this theory we had about how things can be better is actually valid. So let's make some decisions at this stage. Are we going to do some more tests to confirm it or are we going to make some permanent changes? Or actually, if it came up wrong, we need to change the test. And if it's hopeless, we might need to abandon it. Mm. So we've, we've got this loop that can now go on forever because when you've made a change, and I'll come back to what, what happens if the data doesn't agree with the prediction, but when you've made that change and it looks good, you you 
get that into the everyday operations. <laughs> and that's not easy. You're going to have to experiment with how are you going to communicate those changes? Mm. How are you going to communicate both to your staff and to the customers and suppliers and so on? And keep learning as rapidly as possible in small loops and get that embedded in the new operations. So now we've got this experiment is carrying on. We're just not calling it an experiment now. It's regular operations. And we should be looking at the data. Um, and this is where some of your listeners, our listeners, I hope will have heard of statistical process control, where you, you plot this data on a graph and you see whether or not it's it's coming as it as you would expect it to be within what are called the the process behavior limits and it gets a bit statistical but only a bit actually everybody knows the signals and noise in data it's just that generally speaking we aren't allowed to treat the some days are better than others noise as noise we have bosses who say what's that that's no good and you have to do an investigation and 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 it's a really big subject but what i've tried to do in the book uh is to bring it back to the proverbial basics so that you carry in your mind this study act plan do study act keep this everyday revolution going that you can learn often and little and that equals over a longish time to a lot um and if anybody's had the privilege of having a look around a toyota plant um, and indeed some of the other automotive plants, because that's the industry in the whole world that uses this the most. It is astounding, even on a multi-hundred million dollar production line, how the operators are doing this every day, observe what's going on, how does it compare with what we inspect, expected using a control chart, and being able to take some decisions locally and knowing how to escalate. And that's taken decades to get working in big organizations, and many Western ones are still struggling with doing it because it implies openness about data. It implies trusting your operators, a whole lot, lot of things. But anyone who's their own manager, they, they can do some of this themselves without having to kind of wait for permission. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm very pleased about, the reaction of various people who've read this book and are saying, okay, here's some things I can get on with. I don't have to wait for the bosses to do a transformation program or something um, because you might have to wait a long time for that to work. Mm, and, you know, a lot of time, uh, transfer, major transformation programs within organizations, they'll start off with a bang and then so slowly um, fizzle yeah. because there's how, no how systems it, in place. Oh, yeah. It's just it breaks my heart sometimes how after two generations of this, really, because this whole movement goes back in the U.S. to the early 80s. You know, so this is 35 years, really, we're coming up for it. And don't do <laughs> a big headline-busting program is the banner that we always come up with to new clients. And, and, and usually these days, actually, they, they're, if, if, if we get there early enough, they're prepared to take note of it. But sometimes we still get people saying... We want to train 200 people in six months and they're all going to have a project and everything. And, and they simply can't see that what you're doing is, is starting off a whole bunch of forest fires across the organization with no way of handling the consequences. So mm -hmm. yeah, transformation programs have got a bad name, even though a whole continuing transformation program is exactly what every organization needs. But probably don't call it that. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, the, it's interesting because I've been in organizations that have had small, like, three-day seminars where every, let's focus and find out what we're all about uh -huh. and these big charts and everybody's involved. The problem is after that, and the, that the person walks away. Exactly. <laughs> there's no there's no system. Absolute. Absolute. to. And then the other thing is, like, nobody really uh, trusts the person that's an, uh, above them anymore. It's like, if I do this, I'm going to spend all this time and energy doing it. And I'm going to get behind in my regular work and I'm going to get punished for it. And there'll be some person out there who says, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to do what I've been told to do in the seminar. And then three weeks later or a month later, they get bashed for wasting time and yeah. not hitting their targets. So 
It's endemic in the organization. I, I would like to say that everybody thinks these things are new, but you always hear people saying, and not that you just did, but you hear, mm. so in these difficult times of inflation, of no inflation, of <laughs> this, that, and the other. And uh, I worked for a big company in the 1970s, and we developed as a, as a young ambitious manager, obviously, and we developed a particular skill when going on a training course, which is to discover how to l use what you had learned without your boss finding out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we used to sort of share this little gem and think, that's absolutely ridiculous. And this was a very big company, which is now clearly owned by somebody else. Mm. Um, but uh, even today, the, this whole thing of um, enthusiasm for initiatives, it's it's curious that um, that's an infection that particularly Western societies have. Now, if you look at Komatsu, um, Japanese uh, mechanical earth-moving equipment company, and one of my friends is Dr. Kano that some of your, your listeners will have heard of, a very uh, a, a guru if there is one. And uh, he's been a consultant with Komatsu for, oh, 20 years. He's, he's, he's now on the board. I think he might just about be retiring now. But he's the direct, the, the, the chairman gave an address to a conference in Tokyo three or four years ago uh, and said, Octokano has been our advisor through three chairmen. Now, that's constancy of purpose. Mm -hmm. With that degree of consistent, um, pr it's prodding from the side because such advice is never comfortable. <laughs> <It's> very, <laughs> anybody who's been a consultant knows how easy it is to find fault with organizations. And somehow you need to be ready as a big organization to stick with people who will keep asking difficult questions about by what method. How will we know? Uh, how is this useful to the customer? These questions are not difficult. It's not rocket science. Um, but they are very unsettling to, we're, we're coming all the way back to your point, to many top managers who are un, find themselves or feel themselves under pressure for the quarterly results, for the so-called shareholder value nonsense, um, and on all these things which simply distract from the organization doing right by its customers. Um, and, of course, lots of people do work in organizations which do right by their customers. There's lots of big family-owned businesses still. Um, and and that you'll know in the States of, of Mars and people like that. And, and I guess Apple is a different kind of company, isn't it, where they're looking a long way ahead. Um, and so... This kind of approach can be well supported there. But on the other hand, there's also, particularly in IT, there's this sort of all very, oh, it's got to be a technical answer to it. And actually, actually, we come back to it. No, it's not. It's how does the work flow? You can only put the technical support into it if you understand how the work flows from towards the customer. Now, I, I wanted to jump in here because, you know, we're talking about systems a lot. This isn't adding to bureaucracy. It, it, and that's one of the things I think a lot of people uh, get away from systems. Is, oh, now it's all this paperwork and the, it, it's repetitive and it just sounds like uh, something that's not very exciting. Um, how do you get an organization to understand that it's what we're doing here is critically important and it's self-actuating and it's not bureaucracy. Yeah, and it's 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 clearly not easy. I mean, I've got a couple of responses in there. Well, one of which is I think that um, in there's clearly in anybody who reads my book is going to generate some improvement activity and somehow you need to keep track of improvement activity clearly if there's a lot of it going on. Um, but in my experience and, my, and with, with the clients where this has been successful, you, you get the top management understanding the improvement activity by going and seeing, by being prepared to get themselves to uh, a situation in which teams are describing what they're doing uh, and what result, how they went about it and what results they're getting so that they are, and even in big corporations, you can do some of this. And if you can get, and I'm thinking of, a, of an event I hosted in Houston uh, a few years ago, and we had people, the, the executives are from all around the world and they came there and there would be about 
six or eight reasonably big projects report uh, uh, reporting. So this is quite an expensive thing to do because people had to fly in and there they were. But for this sort of long half day, the, the board were going from one display to another, or we divided them up, and they went and they they talked through the two or three people from the teams who were there, and they had their storyboards on the wall. And the financial director, hearing from the people who were doing the work, what they were achieving, he knows the numbers from projects don't tell the whole story. But the trouble is so many programs set up to only report the numbers. So that's that's one of the things, and I, and I hope it comes clear from the book, although I'm not in this book trying to describe big programs. This is absolutely for individual managers who are running things within their own area of responsibility. But if they're successful, it always grows. So that's that's one way of avoiding bureaucracy, not getting involved in multiple spreadsheets with lots of columns and rows and projects and due dates and all this kind of stuff. You need discipline, but you don't need that kind of tracking. And then there's another hope on the horizon, and that's the new version of ISO 9000, which applies from 2015 onwards. Um, and boy, I was involved with uh, quality systems back in the 80s in the very, very early days. And I've always been a bit distrustful of them because clearly they're no better than a financial audit for telling you what's going on. Um, in other words, if people want to kid you, financial audit doesn't tell you. And if people want to kid you, a quality audit doesn't tell you. Mm -hmm. But the idea of the new 2015 version of ISO 9000 is that it's actually a self-assessment structure. And it's about management processes. Um, and there are no forms. There are no tick boxes. Um, and it's, so it's a profoundly different philosophy of trying to say, Let's understand how we organize our operations. You might call that process management. Let's understand how we figure out what the risks are. But let's not try to go to every tiny detail. And, and I think that this is the, the organizations that thrive trust their local people to take decisions to the benefit of the organization. But in order to, for that to work... <laughs> the local people have got to know what the organization's trying to do and they need to buy into it. And now there's a problem for some organizations. If you're a financial service bank or something that's actually your purpose is to rip off your customers, then clearly you can't trust local people to do anything other than rip off their customers. Uh, and I don't know, well, I do know about in the States, but in the UK, you know, we've got all too many of that kind of thing. But let's look at the organizations who are trying to do the right thing for their customers then helping everybody understand how to understand their work and how to go about improve it, you can surely trust them if you've got a consistent use of a methodology to get on with it. Mm. Um, and it's like uh, a roadmap. And, well, that's a uh, that's uh, uh, the trouble with a roadmap. <laughs> sorry, well, well, me... is that it? It implies that you can map out the future. And the one thing that's for sure about this change stuff is you don't actually know quite where you're going. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a jungle. And so nobody's quite done what you're trying to do. They've not done it before. And so it's much more an exploration. I mean, there, it's, it's the climbing the mountain saying, I can see that mountain peak over there, but I don't know what there is between here and there. I need to take a set of kit with me and I need to keep stopping to see what I've learned about this kit and what looks to be coming next and to rethink about it. And so you can only roadmap the immediate future. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're, you're right there. It's more like a hike. And uh, the first yeah. time you go on a hike, you, you, you can research it. You know there's a certain distance. Other people have yeah. done this hike before, yeah. but you haven't actually experienced it. Once you've experienced it, gone there and coming back, because the coming back on a hike is, is just as different. You know, a lot of yeah. people don't realize, yeah. like, so, oh, it'll be easy coming back. So, no, it's just as hard coming back. Um, that's really what these processes are about. It's the ability to say, here's the book. Here's your roadmap and stuff like that. But until you actually start implementing this in your department or just in, for yourself, yep. uh, that's when the questions are really going to start flying. And that's when the book is going to become super valuable. 
Uh, absolutely. That's what I've aimed to do. I've, each of the chapters sets up a certain kind of um, stage of thinking about one's work. And I always, the way I buy books, and I'm a very old-fashioned person, very fortunate to live within a couple of hundred meters of a bookshop. And I go there, I open a book at a random page, and I read at this random page and see if I like it. Um, and uh, and so I think books that require you to start at the beginning and work forwards are, are, are making it hard work. Um, and so... Uh, it's it's that I've got the dream here that this is going to be a book where people can sort of have whatever particular stage they pick up. There's a scenario there of what the what Anne, the sort of heroine of the story, is going through, and then there are some some um, kind of checklist questions, but they're very general, and so it'll just help them think differently around what they're trying to do rather than instruct them on exactly what to do differently. Mm. Yeah, it's not like a memorization process. No. It's more, no, that's here's some suggestions, yeah. and then you go out and come up with different words for it, whatever it works for you, and you're, it's very personal. What you end up with with doing systems like this is it becomes your personal solution. And in Absolutely. In Absolutely. an organization, yeah. there's a book uh, I talked with a guy about a year ago, and that's what it was all about. It's if you're going to change the organization as a mid-level manager or or a little tiny cog in, in, in a big manufacturing situation, it's about making your department a super department. And yep. that's when management will notice you and yep. bring you up to say, okay, can you do that with larger groups in this yep, organization? And, and that's my own my own career progression was exactly that. Mm. You have to do the best in your own part of the jungle. You can't wait for somebody to change the jungle. Exactly. Well, also, um, and, and this is a this is a hard learning that that book teach, taught is you can do that in a department, and if it had zero effect or negative effect on on your work situation, you should start looking for a different organization because uh-huh. the organization yep. here is in is a dead organization. Yep. Yep. And uh, that's a lot. That's a tough lesson for a lot of people realizing, like, oh my God, I, you know, I've got a job. I'm working at it. I'm just working at the wrong place because I'm never going to get anywhere here. Yeah. Yeah, and then the way to find out is to try making things change. And if it really is impossible and it's just, we really think I did my best and it's not my fault, then um, if, you've, if you've learned something about making change happen, you are a more valuable employee in the next company, that's for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about your aha moment because this happens to a lot of writers. You know, <laughs> they've been doing it for many, many, many years. They say, you know what? I should get this on paper to help people. Yeah. Uh, they're researching, they're putting it down, and something happens in the brain when you do that. For you, what was your aha moment with something really crystallized? I think it was, and I was listening to one of your other broadcasts earlier, that um, I didn't have this structure in mind when I started the book. And uh, we have a transformation pathway sort of structure, as we call it, when somebody says, how should we approach a whole organization? Uh, And even though I, and that's fine, and I actually put that to some extent at the very back end of the book, but the actual... If I'm an individual person um, and I've got various younger friends and, and relatives in mind, how do I go step one, step two, step three? And I thought, surely this has got to come. And so I, I used a, a technique called doing an affinity diagram about the ideas um, that I had, which were many. Uh, and then I had about a, eight or ten clusters Uh, And then I used another technique called a relations diagram, which anybody who's been through the sort of quality um, planning tools training will recognize. And this is these are really tools for use with groups of people, but it's perfectly legal to use them on your own. (laughs) Um, And and I looked at this and I thought, wow, here's the sequence. And that became this the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight sequence of the book. Because when I was talking to the publisher right at the start and he was saying this sounds like an interesting book to do. I couldn't give him the chapter sequence to start with, um, and I was, and he was sort of giving me slightly hard time about this. And then, so when I, then I thought, ah, oh, right, okay, and and so that was the aha. There is a sequence, and that's going to have a really serious life within our company. And I'm sure we're going to be able to develop uh, online modules that actually follow this sequence uh, in future. It's it's not so much of a training sequence because training 
programs are slightly different, but it's certainly an application sequence for an individual person. Hmm. I wanted to touch on, because we mentioned a little bit earlier, what happens when you uh, have tried a, a process, have tried a process, and then it fails, and you try another process and it fails. How do you get out, out of that negative cycle? When you, sorry, just for clarification, when you say you, you mean somebody who's tried a process and it fails. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that um, from a leader's point of view, it's very important um, to set up the environment that you do not expect everything that your people do for you to be successful. Um, and certainly in, in one of the big companies I work for, um, I was managing director running a, running a division and we had an incompetent accountant and an accounting breakdown and that cost the, the company half a million pounds in, back in the 80s. That was a lot of money. Mm. And I thought, geez, this is it. <laughs> I've been managing director, my first managing director's job, 18 months on, and, and I sat in front of my chairman, who was actually an extremely tough character, but he said, well, think of it this way, he said, we've just invested half a million pounds in your learning. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was true. From that day to this, have I paid very much more systematic attention to um, the particular subjects there. So that's, that's an obligation of... Um, of leaders to their staff, it's slightly tougher to do it the other way around when you're the one taking the risk and it may not be supportive. But I think you, that, that it's, it's very important that even though you're doing whatever it is you're going to try within your own area of responsibility, that you speak to your boss and that you uh, ask perhaps for no more than their tolerance, so to speak. Let me get on with this. And now, if you've got a sort of boss who says, you better make this work or else, well, that tells you something about that boss. But in my experience, actually, most bosses are dying to have a, a, a junior manager or somebody coming to them and saying, I want to take a new approach to doing some things, and this is how I'm going to do it. And they will be terrific. And, and I think it's important to say, I'm learning how to do this. Uh, because you cannot guarantee to be right the first time you do anything. Mm -hmm. My goodness, if it was easy to do this stuff, we wouldn't find Ford and others still playing catch-up to Toyota and Honda. Mm -hmm. that's, it, it's, that's the way it is. It's, it, it's deeply rooted. Much of it's counterintuitive, um, and, and things are not obvious, and you learn that as you go through doing it. Now... Let's say you're you're a worker bee because you use bees on the, on the cover. <laughs> uh, in, in a large organization, you've read this book, you love the book, you've implemented it, and stuff like that. Who should you give the book to? Should you give it to the person directly above you? Should you give the book to people that are underneath you so they'll become better managers? What do you think is a good and I, and you can't say everybody in the company because that's no, not fair. I, that's not permitted. <laughs> I'm I'm very pleased that we have had one client who bought who bought quite a lot of them for, and I'm I'm thinking what are people going to think about being given this book? We said yeah, of course we will. Um, but uh, no, I think that um, with if, if I was in the position and I had a team of half a dozen people working for me, I'd probably say, particularly if they were managers, I'd say, okay, here's a book that's interesting. Uh, I'm going to give this out. Um, and the next, and, and have a look at it. You don't have to read it if you don't want to, but actually at the next meeting together, um, I'd like one of you to volunteer to just uh, read a chapter and be prepared to talk to the others about the consequence of that chapter, what it means for you. I think you have to make these things very digestible. Um, and so when we've done that, let's see if there's interest in doing some more of it. Mm. And so make a tinsy little uh, sort of introduction in that kind of way. Because, I mean, buying books is about the cheapest possible investment you can you can do in learning or whatever it is. It's mm -hmm. a completely trivial cost. So... That, and, and by saying just read a chapter, you know, a chapter of 20, 30 pages, that's going to take somebody an hour or so. Uh, so that's not a big commitment in time to ask of people. So that's for people who are working for me. How would I, that's a really good question. How would I approach my boss? Um, I think I would be doing things and, and, and hoping they were going to ask me why I'm doing things. And, they, and I would say, well, 
it's here's here's this book that had some interesting ideas. Would you like me to get a, get you a copy? So it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, and I think that you better had already have cooked the meal before you offer to give somebody the cookbook. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, you could uh, think about your strategy with the team underneath you. You've done stuff. You've got, you've seen some process. When you do uh, approach your boss with the book, says, "Look at you know, I've studied this book. This is what I've done with my team. We're seeing to getting really good results. I've marked the three pages that I think are relevant for you, and I've highlighted the areas that you read. Only take you two minutes. See what you think." I, I think that's going. That's a step further than I, than I would go because I think the risk of that. I mean, it's situational. These things are. But I think there's a lot of serendipity uh, <laughs> around here as to as to just what it is that switches somebody on. And and I know that somebody was looking at Anne's story in the book, uh, and and they came and said to, they said to me it was about a criticism from an HR manager or something like that. And they said that rang such a bell with me, and I thought, oh wow, that was almost a throwaway line in the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not it's not fundamental to the storyline, but if somebody finds it interesting, great. Exactly. Now, um, yep. let's talk a little bit about uh, building change in in uh, an organization because a lot of this is diagram-driven uh, and because it's very dynamic. And we've talked a little bit about it with, with your group and, and introducing ideas and stuff like that. But let's say, we, you know, you've got your team, everybody's on board, or, you know, you're the manager and you're going to tell them this is what we're going to do. Um, what is the first step? Oh, without doubt, it's the, the, there's there's um, a map. I'm hastily flicking through the pages, but early, early on, mm. um, there's a there's a diagram of the organisation of a system on page ten, um, and which which is a development of something Dr. Deming used in Japan from 1951 onwards, uh, and which looks at the flow of whatever the work of the department is going towards the customer from the suppliers it looks at the processes that enable that flow to work and it looks at the management processes above that flow which are looking at the outside world which are figuring out how to understand it and how to develop and lead change in the organizations it's very simple in fact it's a childishly simple model um, except it provides an alternative to the organization chart you've got to have one of those because got to have one of those but the origin of the organization chart lies in the american railroad system in the middle of the 19th century when they were trying to figure out a way of ascribing blame for accidents and that's quite an interesting sort of philosophical basis for <laughs> the chart that every organization in the world uses um so the origin of deming's organization as a system is to represent the system as a, as a learning loop so when you see this thing, if you get the book, that, that it's a closed loop is an organization of learning from what's going on into making decisions about what to do differently and also getting information from outside. So that's step one. It enables you to take the 10,000 meter view, the, you know, the, the, the airliner view of the organization, even if it's a local department, you can do that. You can then say, from the point of view of learning how to do this stuff dif differently, let's look from that high level, where's an area which we've got most trouble with and focus in on that area. And because you've, uh, you've got the team around you, um, you'll get agreement to that. And there's one little, <laughs> little thing, one huge thing I've missed out so far, looking at your organization's system, what is its purpose? Mm. Um, and you will find that you if you've not asked that question of the team before there will be confusion uh its purpose is to satisfy the shareholders to maximize pro maximize profit uh to please our customers you know any any one of a number of purposes and the fact that the management group are confused about what the purpose is means that when you're not there they will take different ones of them will take different decisions based on what comes to them. Mm. And you can't afford that. You know, you, you made a very good point about um, purpose and, and the examples you gave were very broad and, and vague. Is that one of the fundamental problems is that people don't have a drill-down understanding 
uh, the nugget of the reality of the purpose. It's like, okay, what are we here? It's like, well, we're here to be more profitable. Like, yeah, great. But why are is this department here? What do we do to make Absolutely. it profitable? And you dig down and dig down and dig down. Yep. And eventually it's like, John, what do you do yep. to do this, do this? And he says, geez, you know, I've never thought of it that way. Uh, uh, and that's always the case. And it's always the case when you look at the organization chart, which is the only model people have, um, of their organization by and large or a geography or something like that um, then no purpose is even associated with that mm. but when you look at the organization's a system flowing from towards the customer and you say what's the purpose of this system you then uh, the, uh, then the ones that are in the main flow well that's perfectly clear um, whatever we're doing is is adding value on behalf of the customer but actually, there could well be more employees in the support and enabling functions like IT or finance or catering or maintenance and all those sorts of uh, functions. And so when you say, well, OK, we're, we, we work in, in finance, what's the purpose of finance? And that's an interesting question, isn't it? Its purpose should be to help the core of the business operate on behalf of the customer, instead of which... It's to scrutinize every expenditure now in order to keep costs down. Now, what a kind of a purpose is that? Mm. And so these are rarely comfortable discussions. <laughs> <laughs> have, you know, really rarely that the purpose of HR should be to enable the managers of the core functions that provide value-adding services for the customer. The purpose of HR should be to help them in every aspect of staff relations to do that well. Uh, but it often doesn't feel like that. If, if you've got uh, performance-related pay systems and appraisals and so on, then HR are the judges. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a good basis for a support relationship. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, it's very interesting because those two examples you gave was all based on power structure. Uh, I'm afraid so. And, yeah. and I think that's a fundamental flaw yeah. in a lot of organizations. Uh, number one, the fear of failure is yeah. massively devastating for organizations. And the other yeah. one is the, the human. <laughs> is the, you know, if we didn't have to have humans in an organization, it'd be a lot easier to run. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the customers, and it would be even easier without Oh, customers. well, those customers, they're such a pain. They want all this stuff. Um, you know, you made a great statement that uh, explicit purpose uh, or explicit goals. And in the book, you, you have actually brought that down to a fine art because even when you're having your meetings with your team, it yeah. should have an agenda. Which what is are we trying to accomplish? Exactly. It all goes down to what are we trying to get done yep. and everybody to have clarity on that. And then it becomes very easy for people to action what they feel will give results to get to that particular point. Absolutely, because they're not always in meetings. I've got this little model of, of or the old, old question of if there's, if there's nobody there to hear it in the, in the jungle, does a tree make a noise when it falls? And it's quite fun to look that up on Wikipedia, and people <laughs> have clearly been <laughs> debating this conundrum for years. But most people's work is not closely observed. So actually organizations are dependent upon what how people respond or do things when no one's looking mm. and if they are not clear about what's being trying to be done then how how can they make sensible decisions so it's it's it, it's a very quick value add that we bring to organizations and right from the first moment of contact with a client when we're going to meet a senior manager and we say well, the first question is so what are we trying to accomplish and I'll always say and actually by the way that we're going to ask this question with everybody we meet and you'll get positively bored with it but once people start asking you from within the organization you're going to start being delighted with it and and indeed they are although then people find it difficult because you don't want to get too pedantic and so on and so on <laughs> but it's it's vital. It, it reminds me a lot of times I, will, I do something very similar. I call it the why process. And uh, I'll sit down with the people that are the decision makers and I'll say, uh, so, you know, why are you doing this? And then they'll ask, yep. yeah, but, but why did you say that? And, that? and after like the fifth or sixth why, they'll stop me and say, Bob, this is, don't, you know, this is serious. Stop playing this game. I said, I'm not playing games. This is deadly no. serious. And no. uh, we're just going to dig down, dig down. And they'll have an aha moment about 15, 20, 30, sometimes 40 whys later, like an it's, hour of whys. Yeah. And, and 
Absolutely. And, and the five whys, you know, just to start them off, are one of many uh, quality tools which are mm. sort of, you know, integrate with all this kind of stuff. Not that we're trying to uh, teach any of those tools in the book. Um, and some of these things are, uh, I don't like the term common sense because uh, it might not be so common sense, but certainly not new. Mm. And I was very, uh, having come across um, in, in one of the lean manufacturing books about a place for everything and everything's in its place. And this is sort of, this is all a very smart sort of thing to have and get everything neat and tidy in engineering sense. And then I discovered this was a quote that comes from a lady called Mrs. Beaton in the 1850s, writing a cookery book about your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, okay, they didn't need to TQM to have some of the, the, the right sort of things. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned a point back there that, and I think that the, the way to say it, it will if you have these discussions and you have uh, clarity in your purpose, uh, then the process will seem obvious. But before that, you don't know what your purpose is. That's what I think the confusion comes from. And you know, I, I, when, I, when I go into an organization, a lot of times what they're doing right now in HR, which drives me crazy, is they're hiring for attitude and not for experience because they have this thing, well, yeah, but we can train them and they'll have a good attitude and said, okay, yes, I've read that book. But you've got to have at least a little bit, a little bit of uh, understanding of what the job process is. And these days with social media, this is a major problem because they just hire kids out of school and say, yeah, look at this girl here. She's amazing. She's got this great attitude and she's young. So obviously she's into social media. And what they don't understand is social media can be deadly for an organization unless they have managers that are all the way up all the way to the president of organization <laughs> because this little newbie she has to talk to the president of the company now when the stuff hits the fan and they mm -hmm. don't get that and it blows their mind in that in that meeting where that's discovered it's like well but we don't have that we, don't, we have no process in place as well now you know you have to have one and we need the personal number of the president of the organization or somebody that can make a, a decision that will affect the company fundamentally because these things happen in hours and minutes, okay. you know, okay. not days. Yeah, and I, I can, I can kind of imagine. I, I'm, I'm, having been an early adopter of of, of IT computer stuff since since the 1970s. Mm. Uh, I, I found myself absolutely frozen out by in in by Facebook and Twitter. Leave me cold. Um, and so I am, I am an old fogey in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so you need a balance. You need people who, 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 who are prepared to know about the, the, the techie, the, the social media. Yeah. But I think you can do with a decade of experience of life uh, beyond uh, the, the college on their heads, that's for sure. Mm. And uh, we, are, we are doing very much more of that in our company right now. And we've got a lady who I'm very glad to say fits the bill of, of, of being really familiar with it all and enjoying doing it, but has been around in several different organizations before and, uh, and it's having a great effect. I'm sure she's going to love this. <laughs> this is some content to do some content marketing with. Yeah, yes, it, I believe I believe that's the term, content marketing. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, basically it's it's a whole new theory. But what's fascinating is nobody talks about crisis situations, and it when a crisis happens, is somebody complains about service, yep. and yep. that gets given to another person. Just happens to have a hundred thousand followers. Suddenly, five hundred thousand people are talking yep. about something. What? When did this yep. happen? Well, that happened about uh, two and a half hours ago. Yeah, and we should yep. have been talking about this. And what's yep. the result? So but you could you could you could get your team around and uh, and and you can use these methodologies from my book. In well, that this it's yeah the methodologies the the thinking exactly. about the process what are we again. trying to accomplish. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's and let's experience it. Another thing I try to make quite a point about is let's experience it. Let's not read about it. Let's not watch a video about it. Let's not ask somebody else what they think happens. Experience it. And mm -hmm. I think social media is exactly that, where if you prepare to put the time into it, you can see it, see it buzz in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, and that team could do that. You don't have to wait for an external expert, although I'm sure that you could usefully use one in that sort of situation you're describing. Well, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, how to 
introduce this book and the philosophies of it into a culture and I think that would be a good way of doing it is 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 making a chart that says this is how to deal and these are the decisions that we have to make now for something that may never happen or may happen mm-hmm. next week mm-hmm. or may happen in a year yep. what happens when uh, yep. stuff hits the fan on a social um, media level okay and and that there are some extremely well developed uh, quality methodologies for doing exactly that it's exactly. another thing coming out of the aerospace and auto industries that make them so safe uh, but they're rarely used, even though the philosophy can be the approach can be used for for non-manufacturing. Very rarely used for non-manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So, with that said, that's fascinating. We're get, I could say we were just about to go down a rabbit hole for two, three absolutely. hours. Absolutely, <laughs> no, I'd, absolutely, I'd be happy to join you. It's great. Yeah. Um, we've been talking with uh, Jan today, making your work work, everyday performance revolution, and it is a revolutionary book uh, and works for anybody, right down to the kitchen, I would think. You know, if you want to run uh-huh. your household better, if you want to learn don't, how to don't study. Don't try my wife on that one. <laughs> if you want to study uh, better, if you're working in an organization, big or small, uh, some absolute gems here. Before we go, what is one thing that our listening audience can do uh, to start working towards uh, making their work work better for them? I think is to go and see it. The Japanese have a term, go to Gemba. And don't just spend a few minutes there. See different people doing supposedly the same thing. Seeing the same person doing supposedly the same thing on different days. Experience it. Mm. Then you'll have some idea beyond the data. Managing by data is a fool's errand. You need to understand what's going on first to see whether the data actually means what it seems to say. Makes total sense. Okay. Jan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week.